If you speak to people who meditate, you find that they discover it, they discover this path, the spiritual path, in different ways at different times of their lives. Personally, I think that we could discover it much earlier in our life than we, than we normally do. We could discover it as children. We could be introduced to this path at a very young age, six, seven, eight years old. I meditate sometimes with children of that age, and I, I know that they, that they have a natural capacity for meditation. They're born contemplatives. Very often, they lose this gift of contemplative prayer. As they get educated, as they go through the problems of growing up and so on, we lose it. And then later in our 20s or 30s or 50s or 60s, we struggle to recover it. But where we find it, where it finds us, is a mystery. It's part of our destiny. It's part of our, our own special story. I was very fortunate that I found it quite early in my life. I first met uh, John Main, my spiritual teacher who introduced me to meditation. I first met him when I was about 14 years old. I was a boy at a Benedictine school that uh, Father John was, uh, teaching, was, was teaching at. He didn't teach me meditation at that period, uh, but he made a strong impression on me. I can remember him coming into the classroom, and we'd actually, uh, the boys in my class, we'd we, had, we were looking forward to him coming in because his predecessor, who taught us a religion class, we had managed to totally destroy. You know how cruel uh, schoolboys can be. Well, we'd, we totally uh, destroyed the self-confidence of uh, the previous religion teacher we'd had, and we were looking forward to being able to do the same on the next one. But when uh, John Mayne walked into the room, we realized instantly that we were not going to be able to destroy his self-confidence. Because he came into the room with great natural self-confidence and great humor. He was a man of a great sense of humor, great joy, but also great, great seriousness and great depth. And uh, he won our respect from the, from the beginning. And it's not easy to win the respect of a group of schoolboys. It wasn't though until quite a few years later when I was at uh, university that uh, he introduced me to the way of meditation. I was in my second year at university and I was going through a time of uh, confusion and uh, some personal suffering. And as you do in your early 20s, you go through you know, a crisis of different levels. So anyway, I was 
and had lots of questions and lots of problems. And I went to spend Easter at the monastery where Father John was at that time, which was in America. And I would uh, sit with him during his free time and talk over my problems with him. And at one of these interviews, he very quietly, very gently spoke about meditation. And I can't remember the exact words he used. It wasn't a big talk. It was just a very gentle, subtle, quiet introduction to it. It was like dropping a seed into, into my mind. And fortunately, I was able to receive it. And from that moment, I never had any doubt that meditation made sense. That it was a simple path, it was a direct path, that it was a true path. And I began to meditate. But knowing all of that didn't necessarily mean that I was going to do it properly. And I had a lot of trouble. I was at university and had a very busy life and lots of activities. So I didn't meditate regularly or faithfully. You know, Father John had said, try and meditate in the morning and in the evening. Early in the morning, early evening. Well, I tried, but, you know, I would do it for a few days and then I'd stop. Or then if I got into a, you know, a bit of a mess, I would start meditating again and that would sort me out a bit. But it wasn't very regular at all. But I knew all the time that this would be a path that I would eventually need to commit myself to and I wanted to practice it more seriously. But found it very difficult to do. Then I left university and I worked uh, for a while in London as a journalist and as a, in, in banking. Uh, again, trying to meditate, but finding it even more difficult now to get the regular times in. Then I heard that John Main, Father John, had come back to London, to his monastery, and that he was starting a small lay community in the monastery for uh, a small group of laymen who would come to live there for six months. Uh, and during that six months, they would be introduced to meditation, and they would meditate, it, uh, meditate regularly, and it would be a time of spiritual formation. And then after that, they would go back to their careers. So this was, uh, it sounded very attractive to me. I wasn't like, didn't like banking very much. And uh, I didn't know really which direction to take in my life. And uh, so I thought I would go and do this for six months. Well, Father John was a little discouraging when I went to see him. He said, this isn't going to be as easy as you think. He said, it will be quite demanding for you. So I said, well, I don't mind, I can do it. So I joined this lay community, and it 
turn my life into the direction that you can see now. I didn't join the uh, community, lay community in order to become a monk. And uh, at the end of the six months, which was a time of great growth, a painful growth, because if you want to grow in self-knowledge, it's going to hurt. Waking up, seeing through some of your self-deceptions and finding out what you really do want, what you really are looking for in life, that can be quite painful. Coming to self-knowledge is the first meaning of prayer. How can we know God if we don't know ourselves? How can you love anyone if you don't know yourself? So self-knowledge is the first step on the spiritual path. And it's not easy to know yourself. Anyway, at the end of this period of uh, self-knowledge, um, in the lay community, I had to decide what I was going to do. And I want, certainly wanted to continue meditating and make it a central part of my life. And I realized I was a very undisciplined person and also uh, a very lazy person and also um, a very slow learner. So for these reasons, I thought I'd better become a monk. <laughs> but I assure you, you don't have to become a monk in order to meditate, as we can see from the growth of the meditation groups here in Singapore over the last 10 years. No monks, no, no one's become a monk as far as I know, have they? No. So, but for me, because of my weaknesses, uh, I needed to become a monk, and I have never regretted it. So, learning to meditate is a process. It took me a few years, and I'm still learning. I, just because I'm up here talking about meditation doesn't mean that I'm not learning about it every day. That is the meaning of the word disciple. The word disciple comes from the Latin dishere, which means to learn. Disciple is a learner. If we are disciples of Jesus, then we are learning Jesus. We are learning who he is. And in the process, we learn who we are. Anyway, the story unfolds. Um, I joined the monastery. I um, studied with Father John. I went with him to Canada to found a community, Benedictine community, based on meditation. And after Father John died in 1982, um, I continued with a growing number of uh, other uh, lay uh, teachers of meditation to continue the work that he began. And now, as Peter said, there, there is a, a worldwide community. And I sometimes think I belong to two monasteries. I have a monastery with walls in London and a monastery without walls that I travel in uh, much of the time. One of the great insights that John Lane had about meditation is that it creates community. Again, what's happened here in Singapore. 
over the last 10 years is a proof of that. What's happened worldwide over the last 25 years is a proof of that. This is a very important point about meditation. It means that meditation is not something you do just selfishly for yourself. But as you go deeper into the experience of meditation, you will find that you are in a community. You are in a community that's called the human family. Because you are in communion, in the deep level of your being, with every other single person. Regardless of whether they share the same faith, or the same culture, or the same whether you even like them. At this deep level, you are in communion with them. What do we mean by meditation as Christians? I said it's a universal spiritual path. I suggested that it's about what we do in the heart, praying in the heart, rather than with the head. But for the Christian, above all, it is about following Jesus, as those two disciples did in that story from the Gospel of John. That means we're also following his teaching. And let's just look at some of the key points of his teaching and see how meditation makes sense as a way of following that teaching, putting it into practice. Well, what does he say first of all? He says, anyone who wishes to be a follower of mine must leave self behind. So, what does that mean, leaving self behind? It's very important how we understand that teaching of Jesus. Because it's a very central part of his gospel. What does it mean to leave self behind? Does it mean I have to repress myself? Does it mean I have to deny myself any pleasure in life? Does it mean I have to punish myself? to inflict as much suffering on myself as possible. Well, that isn't really in the spirit of the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus is about finding peace and joy. These were the characteristics of the early Christian church. Peace and joy. Well, you're not going to be very peaceful if you have a negative, repressive, self-denying attitude to yourself. So, leaving self behind is not a negative statement. It's not a negative spirituality. Now, sometimes we have slipped as Christians into a negative spirituality. We've become obsessed with guilt, with sin, with punishment, with the fear of hell. But none of that 
is true to the Gospel of Jesus. Jesus does not want anyone to feel guilty about anything. He wants us to repent, which means to say, yes, I did wrong, yes, I'm sorry, yes, I'll do better, but not to feel guilty. And there is nothing in the Gospel of Jesus, when you read it in its essence, that presents us with a God who will punish us. God does not punish. God cannot punish. Not in the nature of God to punish us. Why are we so fixated on an image of God who will punish us? We can't love a God who would punish us. We can't. If you think someone is going to punish you, you can't love them. So, leaving self behind is not, has nothing to do with all of that negative spirituality. It is not about repression or guilt, but it is about liberation. To leave self behind means to be liberated from all egocentric obsession, from the ego-bound world, from the prison of selfishness, of self-centeredness, from the prison of desire or compulsion or addiction or fear or insecurity. This is what leaving self behind means. Leaving the ego behind and moving out of the prison of the ego into the great open space of the spirit into the freedom of the children of God. And this again is precisely what meditation is about. What happens in meditation is that you unhook yourself from your ego and you reconnect with your true self. You move out of self-fixation, self-consciousness, self-obsession into the freedom of your spirit. A self-fixated person can't love. A selfish person can't be happy. There's a beautiful Buddhist text sums up the whole of Mahayana Buddhism. All the unhappiness in the world comes from people who are trying to find happiness for themselves. All the happiness in the world comes from people who are trying to make other people happy. That's very true to the Gospel. That's what leaving self behind means. Finding happiness by freeing ourselves from our ego. How do we do that in meditation? In a very simple way. We stop thinking about ourselves. I said simple, not easy. 
It isn't easy to stop thinking about ourselves because we are so caught up in ourselves. But in meditation, we reverse that process. We try something different. We stop thinking about ourselves and we place our attention in God. I don't say we are even thinking about God either. In meditation, we're not thinking about God. But we are paying attention to God. It's a very important distinction. Because meditation is not about thinking. I was once giving a retreat in, um, in the States and uh, trying to describe meditation to the audience and then I noticed somebody sitting in the front row they had a t-shirt with a thing printed on it and the slogan on the t-shirt was summed up the whole of my talk I didn't need to say anything else it said meditation is not what you think <laughs> that's one of the most difficult things to get across about meditation it isn't what you think it's not about thinking the second thing Jesus tells us about oh, essential teaching of Jesus is to renounce all your possessions no one can be a follower of mine unless they renounce all their possessions So what does that mean? If it meant that we all had to give up our wallets and credit cards and cars and houses and clothes, we might as well all go home now. I'm very attached to my watch here. So what does it mean, renouncing your possessions? Does it mean we all have to become like St. Francis? Give away all our possessions? to the poor, well, maybe for a few people that is what is meant and we benefit from the great example of poverty that they, that they make. But I don't think it is what is meant to ev for everyone. We're not all meant to become beggars or sannyasis. What I think it means is that we have to become non-possessive. We have to stop trying to possess people or possess the things that we have in a selfish way. To be non-possessive means to practice detachment. That means if, I hope you don't, you come up to me and you say, you know, I lost my watch and I really need one, can I have yours? I ought to be able to say, sure, okay, have it. To practice detachment. And the only way we can practice detachment while living in the real world is again to get back to the root problem in our possessiveness, which is our ego. If we can let go of our ego, 
then we have let go of all our possessions. If we can leave ourselves behind, then we have renounced all our possessions. And the third central teaching of Jesus, of course, in fact, he says it sums up the whole of the law. Love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole heart, and your whole strength, and your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love one another, equally important and inseparable commands of Jesus. And what does that mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor? If you pay attention to someone, then you are loving them. Just think, at some point in your life where you had a lot of trouble, you had a problem you wanted to talk over. You go to see a friend. You talk it through with them. They listen. What you really want them to do is to listen, to pay attention to you. You're not really so concerned about getting an answer or a solution. If that person paid attention to you, really listened to you, then you will leave that interview feeling better, lighter. Maybe you haven't got the solution to your problem, but you're able to deal with it much better. Why? Because you have been loved. Not romantic love, but it's love. In a marriage, you can live with the same person, go through the routines of life with them, but as the years go by, you may find that you stop paying attention to them. And then you suddenly realize that the love has disappeared in marriage or the friendship. To pay attention, to really listen, is what love is about. Loving God and loving your neighbor and loving yourself. And meditation is about paying attention. The Buddhists call it mindfulness. Christian tradition speaks about it sometimes as living in the present moment or practicing the presence of God. Being awake, Jesus says. So, we could go through the whole Gospel, I could take you through the teaching of Jesus on prayer in Matthew 6, and we could look at all of, many of these teachings of Jesus in the light of meditation. But what I'd like to do now is uh, look at the practice of it for a few moments, and then we'll take a little time to stretch, and then we'll meditate together. <laughs> 